0: Welcome to TCC Alive, a podcast of Tillery Community Church. Hey TCC, my name is Shane, I'm one of the pastors here, and today we are continuing with our series which is centered on the four loves, which are four Greek terms for love that are distinct modes or expressions of love. Now maybe you hear that and your first response is, ugh, who cares about the Greek You know, it's not as if the Greeks loved better than any other people or civilizations. There was some wisdom in ancient Greece, sure, but it's not as if the Greeks had unique or special insight into love. And most people already know and recognize these different expressions of love, these different kinds of love, even if they've never heard these Greek terms. And while you hear all kinds of Greek talk from Christians, because the New Testament was primarily written in Greek, Christians do not hold to a supremacy of a particular language as, say, Muslims do with Arabic, right? You're not quite reading the Quran unless it's in Arabic. That is not a Christian idea. But even if you have a lofty view of ancient Greek, a reverence for the Greek because of the New Testament, even if you think that you can't possibly understand the New Testament unless you have a doctorate in biblical Greek, that still wouldn't apply to this series because, for instance, our Greek word today, storge, appears precisely zero times in the Bible. Okay, so why bother with these Greek words, then? Well, it's because they're helpful in their precision. It gives us a term to describe a particular idea. And even though that specific term may not appear in the Bible, the idea does. And this mode of love, this expression of love appears in our lives and in our world. And so it's useful to have a word that fits the category to talk about it. The English language is very, very capable in many ways, but it has some deficiencies. In our language, we have a distinction between love and like— and that's about it. Now, believe it or not, that's more minute and detailed than some other languages have to offer. But we've all experienced the limitations of our language, usually in grade school. Someone will say, do you like so-and-so? And you'll go, sure. And they'll go, yeah, but do you like them like them? We know what that means. We know the distinction in concept, but English doesn't have the words we like all kinds of things. We love all kinds of things, but in different ways. I love my wife. I love my children. I love football. I love pizza. Same word, but very different things and very different expressions of the word. So we say things like, do you like them or do you like them like them? Because we don't have the word for phileo or eros. So we're using these Greek words because they give us more precise terms to talk about these very important and biblical ideas. So our Greek word today is storge. It's familial love, primarily between parent to child or child to parent. C.S. Lewis in his book on the four loves has storge under affection. It is affection love, natural affection, familial love. And so that is what we're going to be looking at today. You know, we've entitled this series, Love, a biblical definition of a popular misunderstanding. In many ways, this series is standing in contrast to our world. Here's how our culture thinks about love. Here's how our world views these ideas. But here is the Christian idea. Here is the Christian concept. Here is the truth and why it matters. So what is our culture's view of storge, of this familial love? Well, increasingly, it seems to be that our culture regards storge very little, has very little regard for storge. It's not a love that people in our culture generally aspire to or sing songs about or even desire. And you can see that in the culture's treatment of marriage. We are a culture that wants eros, that wants romantic love, without marriage, without binding, without oaths, without vows. Relationship separate from the building block of family we look around at our culture and when it comes to marriage we really see nothing but disaster there now it's true that in 2019 the u.s divorce hit a 50-year low and that's good but in many ways that's only due to the fact that fewer and fewer americans are getting married 50-year low because you don't get divorced if you're not married The New York Times, looking at the data, put out an opinion piece entitled, The Married Will Soon Be the Minority. Pew Research, based on the 2019 census data, found that the share of American adults who were neither married nor even living with a partner had risen to 38%. And while that group includes some adults who were previously married, those who are separated, divorced, or widowed, all of the growth in the unpartnered population since 1990 has come from a rise in the number who have never been married. And to put this in perspective, according to the census data, in 2019, for every 1,000 unmarried adults in 2019, only 33 got married. That number was 35 in 2010 and 86 in 1970. Americans are less and less interested in marriage. And that obviously has huge ramifications for the family, and certainly for children. Just in pragmatic terms, the Brookings Institution study in 2014 said this, children raised by married parents do better at school, develop stronger cognitive and non-cognitive skills, are more likely to go to college, earn more, and are more likely to go on to form stable marriages themselves. But the dissolving of marriage doesn't matter as much if you don't have children. And that, too, is increasing in America. In fact, that's true in most of the developed world. Our birth rate is rapidly declining. And the percentage of Americans never wanting to have children is going up. Again, according to Pew Research in 2021, 44% of non-parents ages 18 to 49 say it's not too or not at all likely that they will have children someday. That is an increase of 7 percentage points from the 37% who said the same thing in a 2018 survey. And why? What's the reason? Why aren't they having kids? Well, again, according to Pew, 56% of those age 18 to 49 who claim that they are not too likely or not at all likely to have children say the reason they are not likely to is because they just don't want to have kids. That's the reason. That's the number one reason. Just don't want to. An article from today.com looked at this data and talked to some people who fit into this category, and here's what they said. I can't explicitly give you a reason why. It wasn't until I got older that I realized that I've always wanted to be child-free. The 34-year-old from Pennsylvania told Today Parents, I wasn't geared towards having a family. There wasn't anything that was interesting to me. She and her husband, Ryan Chapman, enjoy life with their three cats and their ability to do whatever they want, whenever they want. When they got married, he got a vasectomy. Her loved ones understood she doesn't want to have children. Sometimes Chapman receives pushback from people trying to convince her that she might change her mind, and she bristles at the suggestion. Bristles at the suggestion. Increasingly, that is the mindset of our culture. If we define Storgate as familial love as primarily love expressed from parent to offspring or child to parent, our culture increasingly wants nothing to do with it and sees very little value in it. In regards to our parents, they're the people we have to just tolerate. They're the ones we have to suffer through the holidays with, the ones we have to bite our tongues around when discussing politics or restrain ourselves from constantly rolling our eyes. I can't tell you how many articles I've read, usually around Thanksgiving, doling out advice on how to survive spending the holidays with your family. That's what our culture thinks about them, about parents. And in regards to our own children, no thanks. We see children as nothing but burdens, robbers of our freedom, thieves of our liberty, parasites in our time and our money. We want a curated life without any unwanted intrusions. That's what our world wants. That's what that couple in the article seems to want. I have my spouse, I have my friends, I have my three cats. And they either bring me joy or I get rid of them. And that works for spouses, divorce rates through the roof. That works for friends, unfriended that works really easy with cats that doesn't work so well with family that really doesn't work well with our own kids because family isn't chosen certainly not in the way that we choose spouses or friends in our culture as we saw last week that's the way of the world will we choose the people we're compatible with people who share our values people who think like us have similar tastes similar interests curated and chosen It's a small, narrow, self-indulgent kind of love. And that's all we should ever expect apart from God. The scriptures declare this. This is a key passage for this series. 1 John, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. We won't love well unless we love God well. Even that love, which would seem to be the most natural to us, the love of parent for child, becomes twisted, distorted, or outright unwanted. And what's left is a shriveled love, small, narrow, self-indulgent. And that isn't the love of Storge. C.S. Lewis in The Four Love writes this, the people with whom you are thrown together in the family, the college, the mess, the ship, the religious house, are from this point of view a wider circle than the friends, however numerous, whom you have made for yourself in the outer world. By having a great many friends, I do not prove that I have a wide appreciation of human excellence; you might as well say I prove the width of my literary taste by being able to enjoy all the books in my own study. The answer is the same in both cases. You chose those books, you chose those friends. Of course they suit you. The truly wide taste in reading is that which enables a man to find something for his needs on the sixpenny tray outside any second-hand bookshop. The truly wide taste in humanity will similarly find something to appreciate in the cross-section of humanity whom one has to meet every day. In my experience, it is affection that creates this taste, teaching us first to notice, then to endure, then to smile at, then to enjoy, and finally to appreciate the people who happen to be there. Made for us? Thank God, no. They are themselves, odder than you could have believed and worth far more than we guessed. That's such a wonderful way of putting it because the reality is store gay love broadens our world, enriches our world, and widens our love. And if you've experienced that love, then you probably reacted the same way I did when reading about that couple in the Today article, which is pity. They think the world is their oyster. It's all for them, But it's just small. You, your husband, and your three cats. What a small life. What narrow taste. What little love. Now, I'm not suggesting that your life is terrible if you're single or if you don't have kids or if you have a lot of cats. No, I'm driving at the heart behind that mentality. It's closed off and repelling any intrusion the Bible doesn't use the word storge, but it does use its opposite, astorgus. That's the antonym. Here's an example of how that's used. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. No love, Astorgos It can be translated as heartless. Being single doesn't make you heartless, especially as a Christian. And the Apostle Paul even advocates for singleness and by extension for childlessness. He says this, I wish that all of you were as I am, But each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Now to the unmarried and the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. And then he continues in verse 32, I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife. And his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I am saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. You're not second-class citizens just because you're single or don't have kids. Far from it. And storge love is found and expressed beyond the nuclear family. It's found here at church in relationship, meaningful relationship with one another because we're family with all kinds of temperaments and different backgrounds and personalities and class and social status and different interests and different hobbies. It's not self-indulgent or perfectly curated to you. And I'm sure that there are people here that you just cannot stand. I might be one of them. But we gather together every week and we pray for one another and support one another, and press into each other's lives. And if that person that you can't stand was in need, I think you would help if you could, and pray for them. I think you would. And that's because we share the same Father. If we love Him, we love others. And familial love is really our first entry, our first experience into loving without liking. There's natural conflict built in. It's not curated. It's not chosen. Family isn't chosen. It's people thrown together with very different personalities and different temperaments. And you hear that sentiment pop in language all the time. People say things like, I love my children, but sometimes. Or I love my mother, but, or I love my sibling, but conflict, strife, but love. Familial love beyond like or preference. And God calls to us in familial terms. He creates us in His image and He speaks to us in relational terms, invites us to call Him Father, to call Him Abba. But I think when we hear that, we tend to think that loving our Abba is natural, despite all of the various issues we have loving our natural family well. We can think, well, I might struggle to love my family well, but that's only because they're fallen. It's because they're not perfect. But God isn't fallen. God is perfect, so it's easy to love him well. But that's not true. The deficiencies in our love is not due to someone else's sins or shortcomings, because God, who is perfect, loves them perfectly, not blindly. He's not blind to their sin. He's not blind to their shortcomings. He's not blind to their failings. But he still loves them perfectly. Our failures in love are due to our fallenness, not others. And that same fallenness in us not only makes it difficult for us to love others well, but also for us to love God well too. Loving God is not natural to us. If we were curating our lives to our chosen loves without any unwanted intrusion tailored to our sensibilities or our temperament, chosen for what we like in our natural state, God wouldn't make the list. Jesus declares these words, this is the verdict, light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. And even for us who have become children of God, we can love God without liking him. And that way, it can be really no different to the way we view our human parents. You know, I love you. You gave me life. You cared for me. You provided for me. You sacrificed for me. I love you, but. And it can be much the same with God. I love you. You gave me life. You cared for me. You provided for me. You sacrificed for me. I love you, but we don't love him well. We do not have perfect love for God because we're different from him. He is holy and righteous and patient and just and good. And our natural selves are in conflict with that. And we want him to do things our way, to act the way we would act. God declares in Isaiah, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. One of the most frustrating experiences in life is when you are faced with the reality that God's ways are not our ways, when God doesn't act when we want him to, when God doesn't do what we want him to do, if he doesn't act like we would if we were God. That's when we say, God, I love you, but. And it's story gay love that sees us through those moments store gay love that helps us abide in him and rest in him and trust in him as father it's store gay love that the son can say to the father not my will but yours be done even when knowing that meant a cross gk chesterton said love is not blind that is the last thing that it is love is bound and the more it is bound the less it is blind and that's what it is to be family, to be bound together, loving even when liking is hard. And we are bound to God as creator. We are bound to God as father. We are bound to God as husband. A father we did not choose, but who chose us. A husband that we did not choose, but who chose us. Jesus says these words, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And so that whatever you ask in my name, the father will give you this is my command, love each other. Family is not chosen. It's not a chosen love. Our idols are chosen, if that's what you want. Uh, Those are the gods that are curated for us. Those are the gods suited for us, the gods that we naturally love. But when we become bound to Christ, adopted as sons and daughters, or betrothed in marriage as his bride, he gives us a new nature. And from that, we grow in our love for God, and we grow in our affection for God. In that sense, storge love is our first love of God, because you can't have storge love for God unless you become a child of God. And as we grow in our love and affection for him, we grow in our love and affection for others. One feeds right into the other. His love transforms our love, deepens our love, broadens our love. This is the order of things. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brothers and sisters. We love because he first loved us. His love transforms our love to love him and to love what he loves. And what does he love? what does the Bible say? For God so loved the world that he gave. It can be hard to love the world like that. And we know it's filled with all kinds of evil and depravity. And we're not pretending otherwise. We're not blind to that. But love is not blind. Love is bound. And we can love even that which is hard to like because we've been taught that kind of love. We've been transformed by that kind of love. We can love rightly because of God's love in us. And it comes no other way. You know, idols make us heartless. Idols make us blind. Our personal curated world is a small world, a dim world. And a heart for only myself can't love or see anything beyond that. But in God, he gives us hearts of flesh and opens our blind eyes so that we have love that's deeper and wider and our world is more enriched by our affection for one another. We can only love rightly by being transformed by his love. Without that, our hearts close. And like the culture, we'll see no value in storge. Or it'll become twisted. And that's the other thing that we see in our culture, right? Three cats. You know, pets are wonderful things and a fine source for our affection, but it concerns me the degree to which our culture has far greater love and far greater concern for animals than for people. It's this sort of debasing and degrading distortion of storgay. Back to C. S. Lewis, in the four loves he says this if you need to be needed, and if your family very properly declined to need you, or if you decline a family, a pet is the obvious substitute. You can keep all its life in need of you. You can keep it permanently infantile, reduce it to permanent invalidism, cut it off from all genuine animal well-being, and compensate for this by creating needs for countless little indulgences which only you can grant. It's self-focused, even though the source of the affection is outward. And that certainly isn't limited to pets. In our culture, we have a kind of widespread Munchausen syndrome by proxy. That's where usually mothers will either make up symptoms or cause real symptoms to make their child sick because they like that their child needs them or they like the attention or both. And we see mothers all over the place pushing their child at the slightest prompting into being a member of the LGBTQ community. The most in vogue is trans because they like the attention it gets them. They revel in feeling so tolerant and loving and nurturing and love hearing the praises of what a good mother they are. It's self-focused, even though the source of the affection is outward. And that's not just a problem for the world. All of these loves are easily distorted into evils. Munchausen may not be relatable to you, but maybe this will be. C.S. Lewis in The Four Loves lays out the challenge of this kind of love. He says this, This, as we saw, is a gift love, but one that needs to give. Therefore, it needs to be needed. But the proper aim of giving is to put the recipient in a state where he no longer needs our gift. We feed children in order that they may soon be able to feed themselves. We teach them in order that they may soon not need our teaching. Thus, a heavy task is laid upon this gift love. It must work towards its own abdication. That is a heavy task. And it's one many, many parents probably have struggled with from time to time. Our love for our children can be twisted into empty, self-indulgent love. All these loves can be easily twisted. So how do we love rightly? How do we love our children rightly? How do we love our parents rightly? How do we love the family of God rightly? How do we love the world rightly? Back to that verse in John. Dear friends... Let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. Here's the truth. If we want to love others well, it starts with God. That's why our world gets love wrong so often, closed off or twisted, because they separate themselves from the source of all good love. And for those of us in Christ, our loving others well, our loving our families well, starts with loving God well. I'm increasingly convinced that all of our sins, all of our failings, comes down in some way, shape, or form to an insufficient love of God. We cannot hope to love rightly unless our hearts are fixed on God. And storge is the entry into that love when we are adopted as sons and daughters, betrothed as the bride of Christ, born again into the family of God. Thanks for listening. If you want to know more about the ministries and mission of Tulare Community Church, visit us at tccalive.org.